This is Through the Badlands Podcast, and on this episode, we have Jacob. Jacob, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so I'm a sound designer. Um, I've been doing uh, professional sound design for eight years now. I've worked on film, video games, medical hardware, kitchen hardware, and the Amazon Alexa Echo devices. So what is the difference between all those? Is it different creating sound effects for games than film? And then creating different stuff for household applications and medical devices? Yeah, they definitely are different. Film, for example, is linear. So you're basically just recreating the sounds of an environment in their dialogue was recorded at the time, editing that, making it sound good. But the film is a linear process and you're just like uh, recreating things as well as creating moments. Like one thing happens in a film, for example, like an explosion or a creature coming out and you just make a sound for that one moment, spend a lot of time on that. Video games are different because you end up making a variety of sounds uh, with different variations because they have to play over and over again. They have to work. Uh, sometimes you have to create a music system that's like an interactive music system. Yeah, the variations in game audio is a lot different than film. Hardware is kind of similar to games, but instead of variations, you're creating one sound effect for whatever the behavior is. For the medical devices, it's interesting because I did localization for that. I ended up editing over 20 languages for the exact same prompts, but it was for a defibrillator for Philips Healthcare. And those were really interesting because those are really weird codec that you would have to downsample to 1616. And then you'd have to convert into this codec that was then playing out of this tiny speaker. And that had to sound good. And it had to be louder than like whatever the environment was, like say you're at like a stadium, like a sports stadium, stuff like that. So that was an interesting thing because like when you were editing the files, they didn't end up sounding like what you were doing at the end of the day. And overall for devices. So I worked on a uh, soon to be released kitchen appliance. I wish I could say the name, but it was it was a really interesting project because of the way the device functions. They couldn't have a grill, a speaker grill inside of that and because of that all the really cool sounds that uh, were made for that ended up not working there was too much low end and you couldn't hear them out of the device everything i did for that project was i used uh, synthesis i used like a midi keyboard i used it's called chromophone 2 it's really awesome it kind of has like a malady sound it's, it's really pleasant they make really cool synths for that i believe that's aas and i had everything in midi for that so i ended up just bumping it up an octave or two and that ended up helping but what I had to do with like a limiter is I had to smash those files just to get them to be barely audible out of that device. And that's mainly the difference about uh, with hardware than from like games or film is that there's a lot of limitations and there's always some weird way to have to get the audio on the actual device itself and testing it. And you're always having to compensate for a tiny speaker. For the medical devices, are you trying to create different alarm sounds or what are you doing there? Yeah, so specifically for the medical devices, I didn't make any sound effects uh, for the defibrillators because those were typically just generated from uh, sine waves, typically like a thousand or two thousand uh, kilohertz sine wave tones coming out of that device. They had like a signal generator in that and they would just be those sounds didn't need to be special. They just needed to very clearly indicate, you know, do or do not, you know, give a patient a shock that what I did on there is I edited all the, the voiceover. So there was 120 prompts that would walk any like a lay person who's never used a 
defibrillator through the process. So if somebody went into cardiac arrest at the gym or in public and you pulled one of those off the wall, followed the written instructions to put the pads on, it would then in whatever language for whatever country it was in, it would walk somebody through how to resuscitate somebody from cardiac arrest. So those had to be very clear and very, they had to sound good on the speakers. The problem you have with those speakers is that uh, if it was a male voice actor, they there was a, always a lot of bass. So you had to make sure that the bass uh, was really cut out of that. Female voice was actually great on those because those cut through everything. The best example was uh, those devices being at like a sports stadium where there's a general low roar just from everybody cheering and chanting and just from like, you know, 30,000 plus people being at a stadium. So the higher frequency, the better that those would cut through that. I feel like sound design is always trying to tell a emotion. So for different applications in the home, are you guys thinking about different emotions or how you want someone to feel if they open up that fridge or microwave stove or whatever? Yeah, so typically what you try to do is with a lot of uh, just like the general UX sounds for home based devices, you're mostly just trying to communicate a message like the fridge opens. So usually go up like ding, ding, something like that, that it sounds exciting, right? When the fridge opens, you get food. That's pretty exciting. So trying to convey that, like, whereas you'd have an air message being, you know, like, say the fridge door needs to close. You haven't fully closed it. And, you know, it just kind of lets you know, like, mm -mm. It lets you know that it's time to close the fridge door because you've forgotten to do that. And it's interesting because the degree at which you make an exciting sound or a sound that's nudging you to do something different or better, it's interesting how the fine line between a good sound and something that just really agitates people. Uh, like my washing machine and dryer make the most obnoxious sounds. Whenever they're done running, they like run this jingle that goes on for way too long. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that with something that's just like a device is beeping at you or just making sounds. It's infuriating if it's done poorly or just too obnoxious or just jarring. You don't want things in your home to agitate you. And so that's always the line uh, with hardware devices specifically. It's, it's a really interesting kind of sound design. I think that most sound design does communicate, you know, like a certain thought or feeling or feel or vibe. But the communication that uh, like home devices do it has to be very, very clear that this or, you know, this or that is happening. In sci-fi films, everything is making some sort of beep or boop. So where is your inspiration coming from doing these household appliances and stuff? Do you have to think more musically when you design these sounds? Actually, yes, that's a, probably a really good way of uh, describing it. You have to think musically. You have to think, you know, like when a sound goes lower or if you try to do something that's like diminished when you're trying to communicate like a positive message. You have to, you do actually have to think a lot in uh, musical terms and, you know, in the same way that if you like write something piano really dark versus really happy and peppy, because people naturally respond to that. Right. So how did you get started doing films and video games? So I got started in films growing up. My friend, Matt Wade, he's an animator and illustrator and a filmmaker. He does like animations and uh, live action films. We basically used to just shoot things on a mini DV cam and we were always just making stuff together. He bought a microphone one day and we had this scene where we were pretending to uh, kick somebody in the crotch. So what we did was we we're like, oh, we should have a sound for that. So what we did was recorded us hitting a fire hydrant with a metal pipe. Then in Final Cut, he layered that in and we had this like light bulb moment like, oh my gosh, you can make things have a completely different energy just by putting sound into it. And it's interesting, he's a director and filmmaker that really loves sound, which can sometimes be a rare thing. 
sometimes a director doesn't really care about sounds, but he really cares about the sound for his films and films that he watches. And so like he actually really uh, strongly pushed the uh, importance of sound on me before I had full on become a sound designer. I was always a musician. I played in a lot of bands. I played in a band with him. He was the singer. He like always really wanted to push his films more and more with sound. We shot this film on Super 8 millimeter, I think when we were like 19, 20, and we ended up going through and we went back to all the locations that we shot at to record the sound. We used a USB to XLR microphone and we ran it into one of those white MacBooks back from like 2006, 2007, that era. We went back to the actual locations of everywhere we shot to do it, which Knowing what I know now, you wouldn't go to the exact same place, but we really wanted it to be like accurate by adding more sounds into it. And so that was kind of how I got started into that. And I was actually originally uh, in college, I went to school for music production and the school I went to at the time, uh, the music production for like engineering mastering wasn't a full program. And we knew that and they eventually discontinued that program. So I ended up in 2009, I went to uh, the Vancouver Film School uh, up in British Columbia. And it was like sound design for visual media, mostly focused on film. There was a game element. And at the time, there was a music, uh, a light music program uh, that they've since, I believe, have discontinued that that element of the teaching. But it was basically having worked on the films and doing music and helped Matt out with uh, his projects and doing sound with him. That eventually pushed me to go to the Vancouver Film School, uh, where he actually went uh, the same time as me and did the animation program. Uh, There's a final project that they have you do at the end of the year at that school. It's a year-long intensive program. And my final project was his final project. So we kind of collaborated on that, which was pretty cool. So yeah, that's basically how I got into uh, doing sound. And then the video game element came after school. I ended up getting a contract job at Microsoft as my first audio job. And I worked for uh, their team there where I did a variety of linear stuff for videos, in-game cinematics, and then also worked on game elements as well. So your first job is Microsoft right out of film school? Yeah, right out of film school. I got a job at yeah, yeah, Microsoft Game Studios working as a sound designer for it was pretty cool out of the gate. That was a that was a really big job. I got it about six months after I graduated. So now the obvious question is, how did you get that job right out of film school? So that's interesting. So uh, right out of film school, I applied for probably 200 jobs. I just kept applying, kept applying, you know, sent email after email, applying at actual applications, contacting studios, you know, telling them how, how great I thought I was. Right. Yeah. I'm doing air quotes with that, by the way. Cause like at the time I wasn't, you always think you're better than after school, you're excited and you think you are better than you are. And you're like, I could go work at these studios. And uh, that was definitely not the case, but I was contacting people every day, multiple times a day, just being obnoxious really, to be honest. And And I hadn't heard anything back from anybody. I felt a little discouraged. And so one day uh, I was like, oh, I haven't looked at like traditional websites uh, for like finding jobs like monster.com. And that's where I found the Microsoft job. I went on to monster.com and it said, this is an audio job for the video team for a media giant in Redmond, Washington, which is where Microsoft is located. And I didn't realize it was Microsoft at the time. So I applied for it and it was through a temp agency as most of the the game audio jobs there at the time were uh, contract jobs. A lot of them still are. And they ended up getting back to me. And at the time, I was in the process of moving from Vancouver back to my hometown of Boise, Idaho. And so right when I moved back to Boise, like 
three days after I moved back, that agency contacted me and I got an interview at Microsoft for that job. And so it was just a random job I applied for on monster.com of all places. Well, so your first job is at Microsoft. Did sort of the reality set in that this is like a really big job and like, oh crap, I need to do a really good job for these people? Yeah, that definitely existed. It was funny because I like, you know, Microsoft is a giant company and they make a lot of cool things. And so I actually showed up uh, for the interview. I drove there from Boise to Seattle. I drove there and the day of my interview, I had, I, I was like, oh, this is Microsoft. This is a big company. This is a big deal. So I wore like a, like a full suit, a jacket and a tie. And uh, before I went to my interview, I, had some time to kill and I went to Starbucks and grabbed some coffee. I ended up spilling my coffee on my suit jacket and the tie. And I was like, oh no, I've, I've ruined this opportunity. So I was like, there's no way. I was like, it's better to not wear those than to show up with one with a coffee stain. Cause it was very apparent that there was a stain on it. And so when I got there, the, the guy I interviewed with, he said, he's like, I'm so glad that you didn't wear a suit and a tie. He's like, you're even too dressed up for, for this. Like I had like, you know, a button up shirt tucked in and he's like, I'm so glad you didn't have a suit and a tie. And I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was almost like fate spilled coffee on me. So it's a huge company with professional people, but it wasn't like that, uh, that kind of stuffiness that you would think from a big corporation. At least that it wasn't like my perception was like, Oh my gosh, I was working at Microsoft. I have to be like perfect. And it definitely wasn't uh, people weren't like that. It was a lot more relaxed and laid back, but obviously I wanted to do a good job there because I wanted to keep working in audio. And that was a, that was, and did feel like a really big opportunity. Yeah. So can I ask you, what was your first job at Microsoft? Yeah. So my first job, I helped somebody out by making, they needed help with a couple of gunshot sounds for Gears of War 3. And the person was on vacation and they asked me to work on the gunshots. They didn't use a single one of them because they weren't great. And this person had been working on some really cool stuff. But I had done that initially. And then they mostly had me starting out mixing videos for the for the video media team. And it basically was like taking a variety of like a pre-selected track. Like the first music track was like the Lady Gaga uh, Alejandro song. And then I had to edit that to a mixture of game capture footage and then somebody talking about a game. So there was a, like a lot of advertisement stuff for that. And then uh, the follow-up game to that I was working on was uh, called Toy Soldiers Cold War. It was for the uh, XBLA system, like for the Xbox 360. That job was basically doing a bunch of like physics destruction and stuff. And so, and then just the project just kind of kept coming from there. I ended up spending the majority of my time there on this other XBLA game called Crimson Alliance. And that was simply an artist had done just a bunch of really long drawings. When I say, when I say long, I mean like length, if you like spread them out as like an actual sheet, they were probably like, you know, three or four feet long and just did a bunch of camera movements and it was like it was basically like a cinematic without actual animation movements. It was just more camera movements going around there. So I had to create like that sound story like around it. Like it was a cinematic, but there was no movement. So there was a little bit of flexibility with that, which was kind of cool. I never had done anything like that where you had to create like it's almost like like an audiobook, if you will. Is the recording process different from games to film? Honestly, uh, recording for film 
and games is kind of similar. Uh, you do it in the same setup in like a fully style studio. And we had a pretty cool one there. Yeah, doing stuff for film, you do it to video. So you're like watching something on video and you like perform it, whether it's like, you're, you know, you're doing like feet or cloth or you're hitting two pieces of metal together. Um, there's that element of it where you're watching and performing. The second element to film is stuff like explosions. Obviously, you're not going to create an explosion to picture. That involves more sound effects that you pull from a library. Uh, I was lucky enough to do a few explosion recordings where I have some of that content that I use. But, you know, there's a lot of explosion stuff uh, in libraries as well. For games, you're doing the fully setup, but you're not doing it to picture. Sometimes you are if you get a good game capture. But a lot of times you start out and you don't have any game capture footage. So you just have to start piecing stuff together kind of based on the description of like what the sound effect is going to be. So the recording is kind of the same. And you end up getting a lot more of it for games, I think, because of the amount of variations you have to create. And there's a lot of field recording that you do in games as well, not just Foley Studios, but like going out and getting like certain kinds of sounds, whether it be like animals or gunshots or explosions. There's a lot of gunshot recordings for games because a lot of games are shooting based. For film, as sound editors, we can just kind of look at picture and tell what we need or the emotion that we want for the film. But for games, are you kind of relying on different concept art for that seed or the emotion and feel for those sound effects for the game? Yeah, you're definitely relying on uh, like the concept art, uh, sometimes game capture. Early on in a game, there sometimes is not a lot of game capture. So you're basing it on like an Excel spreadsheet describing like the behaviors like a character will have and then all the different kinds of physics objects that you may interact with. Uh, usually for for games, I almost every time have started out doing feet and ambiences. Yeah, because like you get a list of like the surfaces. That's usually very preliminary, at least in my experience. And then the character's wearing like a leather shoe. So you're like, all right, I'm going to do 20 footsteps for all the different surfaces. Have you recently started doing VR games? Yeah, so um, my experience in VR was... I worked on Oculus Rift's uh, launch title called Farlands. It was their first game that they launched along with the launch of the actual hardware from Oculus back in 2016. And that game was interesting. It was a space, uh, it was a planet uh, in space, different, you know, how planets work. They're in space. Uh, (laughs) But it was this planet you'd go down to and you would interact with these alien creatures that were on it. And I was brought on to that project I mainly, I would say 90% of what I did on that project was creature vocals. And there, yeah, there's these three creatures, this one thing that was kind of like, uh, it almost kind of like, it was like a cat, like a, like a wild, like bobcat or something. The second creature was kind of a squid bird hybrid. And then the third creature was, was an ape that had been evolved and was a little bit smarter than like an average ape. And that project was interesting because they all had so many different animations and variants of the animations. And there wasn't enough source in the world, like in all the libraries and stuff to make things sound different enough. And so what I ultimately had to do was perform all the variations of like using my own voice. So like the bird creature, I did this weird inhale squawk and I would perform it to all the animations for it. And then um, have you ever heard of that plugin by Zynaptics called Morph 2? Uh, nope, I haven't. It's pretty. It's a pretty cool plugin. And what I ended up doing with that is I would do my voice doing this kind of weird squawk thing. At the very end, it always sounds human. So I would take like a 
like an old parrot recording or something. And I would like uh, automate it so that at the very end, you kind of got like the mixture of my voice and the parrot so that you kind of ended with like the bird sound. And that creature was definitely the, the uh, one I was the most proud of. He had so many variations and like, I really got to perform with it. The smaller cat like creature uh, that was, he was fairly easy to, to blend my voice with other like raccoons and pugs and other things. And then the ape was fairly straightforward. I would just do just kind of like my voice now, and then I would uh, pitch it down. And then sometimes, that, depending on his behavior, add like a walrus or something else, or like an elephant or something that to make it lower. Uh, but yeah, so that was my VR experience. When designing sounds for video games or film, what is the most difficult? Is it the actual sound design process, or is it something else like dealing with people or contracts? I think the most difficult thing for me at the beginning of any project, whether it's games or film, is simply just finding the uh, the aesthetic. Like, what is the the context? What is what are all the sounds going to feel like? Because you need to make it all feel like it's one world. And the question I always have is, what does this world sound like? Coming up with what, like you know, specific worlds. Like, I'm currently working on an animation with my friend, and finding. Uh, it took us a little bit to kind of find what that that world sounds like. But once we found it and we're like, oh, this is it. I can usually go through the sound design stuff and, and crank stuff out pretty fast. But like usually there's a lot of time for me spent just kind of like uh, doing tests, doing experiments, just trying to figure out what things actually are going to sound like at the end of the day. So when you find that on the different feel and the emotion for the project, does that really change everything like drastically about like the different footsteps, ambiences, foley, uh, maybe even the weapons? For example, if I recorded a footstep, let's say gravel with a leather shoe, would it work on like a medieval Europe game and then transfer over to like Western or, you know, modern day America? I mean, I think it's more about the the surfaces. I think that feet overall are pretty straightforward, like a leather shoe from like like a leather, you know, like a thinner leather shoe, I imagine, from like a medieval time still might kind of have the same feel like stepping on gravel as like a modern sneaker would for like, you know, like just a more modern setting. I think that that specific element where it would be a little bit trying to kind of figure out what things sound like more would be in more of the Foley aspect. Like what are the clothes sound like? What are like, you know, the weapons and just like the kind of things that are like attached to the character sound like more than the actual feet. I I feel like the feet can be pretty straightforward. Sometimes, you know, if you have like a different kind of, you know, like let's say like a robot or versus a horse versus, you know, like just a creature or bare feet or something. Sometimes you kind of can spend some time, you know, adding some finesse to those. But in general, I think the Foley ends up playing more of a part than the feet in regards to like the difficulty and time spent on it. Right. So when working on a new game, by let's say just taking the footstep, for example, how do you know when that's good? Like, how do you know when that sound effect is done? Hmm, That's an interesting question. Uh, It's kind of this this almost might sound silly, but it's kind of based on a feel. It's like, oh, like, you know, that thing when you're like working on a sound edit or some design and you like, you've done something and you're like, all of a sudden, whether it's like an EQ you've applied or an extra layer and you're like, oh, that's it. That's kind of this thing that I've been envisioning in my head. For me, that's kind of the process. And I know that sounds a little bit metaphysical and, but that's, it's just like, oh, it it now feels right. 
in the game world, sometimes you do have like a couple layers of like hierarchy, like sound supervisors and stuff who also uh, want to uh, have some say and approve the, the kind of sound that like, you know, because you're trying to like match what you think should be in there against what they also envision being in there. So that element can be uh, challenging, but it's mostly for me just feel like it's like, okay, this feels right. Like I, I don't feel like I need to do anything else to this. And it's kind of just like a sense if that even makes sense. So what advice do you have for game audio people and also audio post-production that are coming right out of film school? Like what habits and stuff do, do they need to develop? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll address it as film and games because I think I personally feel you should approach the two slightly different. I would say somebody wanting to get into games should really try to learn uh, like the audio middleware, like uh, like Wise, Unreal, FMOD, Unity. Just Even if just picking one, uh, Wise is often, in my experience, the most used one, but learning how, how that functions, how the different containers work for that to create the experience for the game. Because those also come with like test projects. And I would say like do the test projects, try to create your own world. Honestly, practicing making like variations of a sound, even if it's just like a sword hitting the ground or a sword swish, or if you played them, you know, like a hundred times, just randomly just picking between them, trying to make them sound like the same yet different. Because there's like a nuance to that that is definitely challenging that if you had those skills, like kind of coming out of it, or like after school, like developing those skills a little bit more, I think that that is really good. I also think that just like contacting, trying to find people who are doing like really like you know, smaller indie games, whether it's like an, like an iOS game or, or just any mobile game and just seeing if you can get on there and help them. Sometimes you got to do some, some free stuff, but like, I think just developing the technical skills for games is really valuable because often the, uh, the game audio postings, they want somebody to be like a super ninja with, uh, the middleware tools. And I think that that is, uh, really valuable to, to know. Well, for film, it's kind of different. I think that this actually might apply for both of them, but for film and games, I would say, honestly, practicing doing something with sound design every day is really helpful. After I graduated and I had a lot of uh, free time because I was like done, you know, going to school for like 10 hours a day, I had a lot of free time and I just kept practicing. I would find some video on YouTube, uh, find a way to download it and I would, you know, post a portion of it, but just doing something different experimenting i used to actually pick like random sounds like a cat meowing and see like how many different things that don't even sound remotely like a cat meow that i could do with that and this was just like very early on just trying to keep the skills sharp obviously like applying for jobs i looked a lot actually on craigslist for uh, for films that needed help whether for money or for free and i ended up doing like 10 different projects like right after school um, and I contacted uh, a person that I had been in, uh, that I'd known from the past who had just finished a film and I got a hold of him and I asked him if I could do the sound for his film. And that was actually a really good project because he had a full feature film that he let me do all the sound for. And that was pretty cool. Beyond that, I ended up uh, working with him in a paid capacity on uh, two other films and then a TV show pilot. And so that was, you know, I think it's just about keeping your skills sharp. I think you got to reach out. And honestly, for both of those, the best advice that I was actually ever given by somebody who had been in the industry for a long time, who I'd met at school, he told me, he's like, find the job that nobody else wants to do and get good at that. And for me, that was dialogue editing. 
Dialogue editing isn't glamorous or fun. It's sometimes challenging and sometimes getting really bad quality dialogue and being able to clean it up in like RX and do that. That's really satisfying. But in general, it's very utility. But being a good dialogue editor is a very valuable skill. I've ended up doing a lot of projects as a dialogue editor, and I'd spent a lot of time cleaning up dialogue. I had friends that had like tapes that their grandfather had like, you know, read when they were like in the 80s reading something from for like Halloween. I would get the digital version of that and I would practice cleaning that up, making it sound as natural as possible. And then just learning how to like do dialogue fast, like, you know, getting all the voiceover and stuff for like a game. Uh, and I ended up in the last... Uh, uh, two years, I ended up working as a freelancer for uh, Undead Labs for the their video game State of Decay 1 and 2. And I took on all the dialogue editing for that project. And that was really cool. That was a lot of dialogue over 100,000 lines over a period of like two and a half years. And that was the one skill that I was like, oh, I could definitely be better at this. And I got better at it after hearing that advice. And I often do a lot of dialogue editing and stuff. So I would say those are the practicing the skills, which includes just like doing the dialogue stuff and you know, getting good at something that maybe somebody might not necessarily want to do. Out of the gate, I don't think you're going to get the glamorous, you know, designing all the Star Wars sounds job. So so besides cutting up the different dialogue clips and taking out background noise, taking out different clicks and pops, what other skills and different habits you need to have being a dialogue editor? I'm assuming you need to be very organized and stuff, right? Oh, yes. Organization is, is key with that because you can't, yeah, you can't just be searching for files or you know, wondering where things are. You have to know exactly where everything is. I usually make copies of stuff and, and, you know, name like the folders appropriately. I'll get the initial raw stuff. I'll make a copy of that. That'll be the work in progress. Once that is done, you save the work in progress as is, and then you make like a final folder. So you always have like a way to like go back at any given point and reference something if you need to. If you're like, oh, this one line, something happened in there. I don't know what happened. We got to go back to the beginning and fix it. You can do that. And you're not just constantly like overwriting your files and stuff. You really need to be organized about that. What other advice can you give sound editors and sound designers that might not just be technical, but maybe a good habit to start doing right now? Honestly, for me, the most important thing that I do is you just experiment, just play around and have fun with it. Doing sound design is one of the coolest jobs I think anybody could have. You know, I worked in retail for 10 years and, you know, there's a there's a world out there that's not as exciting as doing sound design. So I'm very happy that I do it and grateful that I've had the opportunities. But playing around is one of the things that I love the most about sound design. Just like experiment, like get demos of plugins that you necessarily couldn't afford or something and just experiment and see what you can do. And you I always learn something when I'm just playing around. Just having fun. It's like playing guitar. You're just like kind of dinking around and you just you're like, oh, that's interesting. But like it's, you know, it's kind of practice, but it's more just having fun. Like guitar isn't work for me. Guitar's fun. Sound design is work, but it is also fun. But because of the fun, I can do it as work. So do you think there's like different qualities that employers are looking for to hire sound designers, like whether it be organization or maybe something on their resume that might help them to get their foot in the door? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think being organized is a really smart uh, habit to start learning and just like finding ways to name files, you know, depending on how you do like a numbering system. I actually always date files or like Pro Tool sessions at the beginning of it. And I do it uh, year, month and date so that they will chronologically fall into order. That's something that I really am a big fan of. So the organizational skills. And then I also think that knowing the basics of audio is really helpful because like you'll often be like asked to do something really quick 
and it's usually very basic, but having like good speed at those and just like knowing the basics. Often I'll do mixes for broadcast commercials. Uh, that was actually a really good skill to learn. Just learning how to like, you know, do the broadcast, get the mix right for the Calm Act. Like other things like, oh, I have like half an hour to finish this 30 second uh, piece, whether it, it's going to be broadcast or not. But you're like, oh, man, like going through and manually automating like music to dialogue that can be time consuming if you don't have a lot of time. You can learn things like how to sidechain a compressor. The dialogue will then duck the music. It's like a it's like an older like radio technique, you know, learning stuff like that, like. Honestly, I think one of the things that I would like to know more about in regards to the basics is like compression, because I think that that is a that is such a fascinating topic. And I don't know as much about compression as I wish I did. It's still, you know, when I was like first doing sound, I thought that compression just made things sound louder and stuff. But it's really what it's doing is attenuating, but like finding the different ways you can use that. But I really think just having the basic skills to do stuff is very important. And that includes like organization, editing, knowing your tools, like knowing like your shortcuts that you would use in Pro Tools or whatever DAW you use, and just being able to do things fast and accurate. People are going to listen to this podcast. What is one piece of advice that you can give them that will greatly impact their life, whether it be sound design or maybe a different field? I would say probably the best piece of advice that I could give just from my experience is don't be a jerk. Even if somebody else is being one, be nice to everybody because you never know if you lose your temper or you lose your cool and you just say something flippant, you never know who you're saying it to. That person someday could be like a good connection and it's not, your ego is not worth burning bridges in the future. And I think it pays to be nice anyway, but I would definitely say like, don't lose your cool, keep your head on straight when things are frustrating because things can be very frustrating in all avenues, including audio and various forms of media. Just be nice. Jacob, let's wrap this up. Cool. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.